0: Industrial accidents, ancient Solving poisoners, crime. poison Chemical prevention. Skills. This is Toxic History. Um, I am so pleased to introduce Adam William who's a professor of emergency medicine at Columbia University Medical Center. He also happens to be very interested in history and uh, a former organ poison center fellow. Yeah! <laughs> um, <Well>. Thanks Jen and thanks for that introduction and thank you all for being here. I'll tell you I have no disclosures and I just wanna give a shout out. Thank you, Jennifer Eskridge and Kelly t for inviting me to be here and also for everyone who's done toxic history before this including from before when I was a, even a fellow. So today's topic is going to be Radithor, radioactive water and Radithor is a radium-based was a radium-based quack medicine which you'll learn all about today and the topic is really inspired by the nacct book club which just took place the previous hour which was on the radium girls by author kate moore which was this incredible well-written well-researched awesome book about how radium toxicity caused the horrific just horrific issues with these young women and frank girls teenage girls who were dial painters in the 1920s and 1930s to create these glow-in-the-dark radium dial watches and ingested large amounts of radium. But of course, radium was occurring in other, other ways as well. So we'll start with just a little bit of overview of kind of the time and culture of this time period. So looking back at 1927, this is when Babe Ruth was playing for the New York Yankees. Charles Lindbergh was named the Time Magazine Man of the Year, and the movie Metropolis was kind of the original movie where we get the, the phrase cog in a machine from, where human beings were kind of replacing the gears and moving the switches and levers, you know, the, some of the similar issues we're having today. Following 1928, Coco Chanel was taking iconic photos with a Great Dane. The Chrysler Building was being built in New York City. 1929 hit America and the world like a ton of bricks with the, the start of the Great Depression, and the Crashing end of the Roaring Twenties. This was followed very shortly by the Dust Bowl, which really kind of continued to devastate the country. Still, life goes on. Buildings are being built in the Art Deco style. Mm-hmm. Movies were being made. This was the time before the Hollywood Hayes Code, so movies were really just kind of weird. I mean, this is Boris Karloff's Frankenstein, and this is Charlie Chaplin. I mean, they could, they really had no rules, and it was. Only the Hollywood haze code a few years later that made movies very kind of light and fluffy. And then we come to 1932. Amelia Earhart flies across the Atlantic by herself, very impressive. The New York Yankees uh, defeat the Chicago Cubs for the 1932 World Series and Franklin Delano Roosevelt is sworn in as president. And this is where our story begins, in 1932 in New York City. In fact, it begins on March 31st, 1932 in the Upper East Side of Manhattan, very close to Gracie Mansion, in a small private hospital called the Doctor's Hospital, which was kind of a private for hire, for profit hospital, never heard of such a thing before, (laughs) where wealthy people could pay for private treatment from super specialists. And getting even more granular, our story begins in the Department of Rontgenology, the X-ray department, which was run by Dr. Joseph Steiner, who for the past several months had been taking care of a patient who had been slowly but steadily deteriorating in a way that I think might be very familiar to anyone who has read The Radium Girls. The patient had been losing weight, his jaw was literally falling apart, and he was clearly dying. And finally, on this day in 1932 at 7.30 a.m., the patient died. Rest in peace. The very next day, April 1st, 1932, on the New York Times, big journal, <laughs> they reported this man's death. Eben Byers dies of radium poisoning. He was a famous athlete. He was only 51 years old, very young to die. And he had been drinking a patented water for a long period of time. A criminal inquiry was already beginning the day after he had died. That very same day, the Evening Star in Washington, D.C., reported that Byer's death was held accidental and that his death was traced to drinking radium water for years. And in fact, his death was forecast months ahead of time. His illness had begun five years ago, in fact, after a fall after a sports game where he had injured his arm. And in order to kind of provide self-medical care and self-healing, He consulted a doctor who ended up prescribing a special tonic called Radithor, of which he drank 1,400 bottles over the past couple of years. This Radithor was produced by Bailey Radium Laboratories Incorporated of East Orange, New Jersey. And they had just lost an FTC trial because they had been advertising their product as harmless, which we now know is untrue. That very same day, the Indianapolis Times, this is big news, right? This is all over the country. There's a report of a radium death, and hundreds, a hundred people are said to be menaced because this is not the only man who had been drinking radithor. In fact, just the previous year, a woman named Mary Hill had died. Her death was reported in Time magazine. The medical examiner, Dr. Charles Norris of New York City, was about to conduct an autopsy. We know from previous records that a physiotherapist, Dr. Moyer, had prescribed this medicine. So it wasn't really just picking it up at the pharmacy. A physician actually prescribed this. And Dr. Frederick Flynn, who anyone who has read The Radium Girls will recognize this name, was interviewed and started discussing what actually occurs when someone drinks radium water. He stated that the first type of radium water was actually a product (laughs) containing radium salts itself. So radium solution, radium salts are dissolved in the water and that is consumed and therefore radium goes into the patient's body. The second type is a little different. The second type is a little bit closer to what we would consider a homeopathic approach to radium. So radium is held close to the water and its emanations, its alpha particles, its beams, its breakdown products, the radon goes into the water and the water does not retain radioactivity for nearly as long and it does not contain any radioactive, um, any radium itself. What we do know though is that radium eats away at bone. And that's what happened to our patient Evan Byers. More, more papers are reporting this the same day. The Waterbury Evening Democrat. Radium poisoning is endangering lives of several hundreds. Raditor is radium water. It's killing people. Famous sports person is already dead. It's a process of bone destruction. Radium death is, peril is facing wealthy men. That was day one. <laughs> April 2nd, it continues. This media blitz is not over. This is a celebrity death and we're not done. Death stirs action on radium cures. This is unacceptable. We have to take action. The trade commission is involved and the autopsy is showing symptoms. Why, why were people so interested in this one man's death, Evan Byers? Who is this guy? This is a photo of him. This is two photos of him. There's a lot of photos of him. Well. He was a famous golfer. Personally, I don't care about golf. No (laughs) offense to anyone who does. That's not a ding on the sport. It's just, I don't find it that compelling, but clearly a (laughs) lot of people love it. And Evan Byers was a famous athlete at the time. If you go back to the 19-teens, you'll find articles about him, about following his career in the sport of golf. He was well known. In addition to that, he had inherited his father's steel company in Pittsburgh, Byers Steel. And he was a millionaire in the 1920s, which, It's kind of a big deal it's a well-known wealthy person so in comparison to the radium dial painters who certainly did receive media attention but maybe not in in the same degree maybe not quite as fairly as this man uh dr roger maclis had this to write america was at that time in the grip of the great depression and the death of one more poor industrial casualty from a dial painting factory would not have been front page news but Byers was a millionaire, an internationally known industrialist, sportsman, and playboy and chairman of the Byers Iron Foundry of Pittsburgh and New York City. So whether fair or not fair, his death really brought brought the attention of the media in a way that um, other people's suffering and death did not. So we do have a, a fair amount of the records of Eben Byers' death. Specifically, this is a photocopy of his actual death record, which I obtained from the New York City Medical Examiner. And if we look closely at it, we can see in handwriting that his cause of death was necrosis of the jaw, abscess of the brain, radium poisoning, and terminal bronchopneumonia. The form is signed by New York City's chief medical examiner, Dr. Charles Norris. We also have records from his autopsy and we can see some actual words written by Dr. Charles Norris who conducted the autopsy. We know that in the the weeks and months leading up to Bayer's death, he had become markedly emaciated and anemic. Prior to his death, he had dropped to 110 pounds. He had developed necrosis of the jaw. And he'd been drinking literally hundreds and hundreds of bottles of this radithor stuff, 1400 bottles at least, each of which contains two micrograms of radium, which is a lot. <laughs> 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 in fact, in the days leading up to his death, the air that he breathed out was radioactive. This was measured. <laughs> Pieces of his jaw were literally falling out. And by the time he died, this previous athlete, who was not an old man at 51 years old, weighed only 90, 90 pounds. Really horrible. The autopsy further revealed that what we already knew, that the jaw bones had necrosed, an abscess had formed inside his brain, presumably from the immune system effects of radium and the the infection of his jaw and the bones of his head and face and skull. And to complete the autopsy, Dr. Charles Norris actually took tissue samples as as a scientific (laughs) autopsy should be done. He took samples of liver, lungs, spleen, and he also took bones, femur, vertebra, ribs, jaw, and teeth. In the 1920s, technology was certainly different than what we have available today. And to measure the radioactivity from these various tissues, they used a device called an electroscope. This is a photo of a 1920s electroscope. This is what it looked like. It required quite a bit of calibration, which I'm not gonna pretend to understand. But this thing worked apparently. And what Dr. Norris did was measured the radioactivity of different tissues and determined that Primarily, it was the skeleton that was radioactive. In fact, 99.5% of the radioactivity coming from the tissues of Eben Beyer's body were found in his skeleton. This chart just shows kind of his cumulative radium and radioactivity dose over time as he accumulated it from drinking radithor from all these years. Let's take a look at some of the skeletal autoradiographs. So Dr. Charles Norris took these bones as described, he cremated them, ground them up, and applied them to photographic film. Waited some time and then developed the film. And this is what he found. These are the photos. So Mr. Ebenbeyer's femur was emitting radioactivity. His vertebrae were emitting radioactivity. His jaw itself was emitting radioactivity. And so were his teeth pretty horrific I think we have a sense generally of what is radium poisoning but let's talk about it from kind of a clinical medical sense what does radium poisoning mean what does this look like well radium as we know from Eben Byers autopsy tends to deposit in bone where it emits radioactivity inside and out it destroys the bone marrow which is right there and causes aplastic anemia the bone marrow is the site of production of white blood cells red blood cells platelets And so patients develop immune system problems, severe anemia, bleeding issues. Because it's embedding itself in bone, emitting radioactivity, it's literally killing bone. It's killing bone cells. It's sterilizing the bone from within and it causes osteonecrosis, which causes patchy holes to form in the skull, in the femur, in the jaws, in the wrist, in the radius. Every bone there is. And as we know from other, other sources of information about radioactive material, it causes cancer, it causes specifically osteosarcoma, although it causes other types of cancer as well. Radium itself, aside from its health effects, was a pretty amazing substance, and is, I guess, if it's kept outside of the body. It was discovered only 34 years before the events of Eben Beyer's death in 1898 by Marie and Pierre Curie. This is new stuff, this is, this is like cool for, at the time. <laughs> At least people thought it was cool, right? Because Marie Curie was invited to the White House, and this is a photo of her in 1921 with President Warren Harding. I mean, she was a celebrity, as she should be, right? Like, she was badass, right? She like discovered a new element, she got a Nobel Prize, and then she got another Nobel Prize. I mean, this was, this was the rage. Like, she was a celebrity scientist of the time, well-earned for, for multiple amazing feats in science and medicine, um, and radium was one of them. This is the periodic table of elements from a textbook from 1923, and this is Marie Curie's contribution, one-off, right? She also discovered polonium. So, um, so radium was a brand new element. It was very kind of, it had a lot of mystique and mystery. But we also know from our scientific education and training that it's in the same column as calcium. And this is the reason that it's uh, such, a, such a problem for human health, is that it actually deposits in the skeleton, the body treats it like calcium and deposits it in bone. From the, from the standpoint of kind of radioactivity, what does it do? What, does, what types of radioactivity does it, does it create? Well, radium is a breakdown pro- an intermediate breakdown product of uranium. So uranium breaks down to thorium, breaks down to radium, breaks down to radon, which then continues this entire cascade until it ends up in lead, uh, a radio stable lead, which does not con- continue with further d- decay. So you'll find radium in tiny, tiny minute amounts, anywhere where you find uh, uranium. It emits alpha particles, beta particles, and gamma rays. Alpha particles are essentially a helium nucleus, so no electrons. It's a particle. It's large. It carries a lot of energy, but it doesn't penetrate very deeply. So it will not pass through even a sheet of paper, although that piece of paper is going to get messed up. Beta particles will pass through the sheet of paper, but they'll be stopped by aluminum. And gamma rays need to be stopped really by thick pieces of metal, thick pieces of lead. And uh, radium does emit all three of these, but primarily is an alpha emitter, which generally speaking means that, uh, bless you, if uh, if it's exposed externally, if it's not ingested into the body, it might cause some skin irritation, but it's probably not gonna do that much more than that. Another factor going on in the 1920s was simply the cost of radium How much did this stuff cost it was definitely a new element. It was very precious and The cost in 1920s dollars was hundred and twenty thousand dollars per gram When researching this presentation, I found that worldwide since the discovery of radium It's estimated that there's been about 300 pounds of it produced so still pretty rare and precious but by 1930, 10 years after this, the price had dropped to $20,000 per gram. Huge price drop down to a sixth of what it was. So what explains this? Part of it is, uh, you know, increased demand. Certainly there was a consumer demand for radium for various reasons, but also there was a increased supply. So as I mentioned, radium comes from uranium and is found anywhere uranium is found, usually in the form of pitch blend, which is the kind of the natural mineral form of uranium. And there was an enormous deposit of pitchblende discovered in the Shinkolobwe mine in 1920 and the mine opened up in 1921. This was part of what was then the Belgian Congo. And while I've now briefly discussed the financial cost of radium, I think it's just really important that there's absolutely no way to measure the human cost of radium. The Belgian Congo was one of the, the most horrific forms of I don't wanna compare horrors, but a truly horrific form of colonialism that involved um, the grossest forms of exploitation, amputation as a form of punishment, uh, and just horrors that cannot adequately be described. Um, So even though the, the dollar cost of radium did decrease, the actual cost arguably, in my opinion, significantly increased. Regardless, radium was available, increasingly in the 1920s, and was being used in medicine. It was first demonstrated to have a medical and biological effect actually by Pierre Curie who applied it to his arm. And this is a a photograph of the lesion that was produced. It caused some scarring and blistering and local destruction of the tissue of Pierre Curie's arm. And with that came kind of the dawn of medical radium. So here's a photograph of a, a woman who's having topical radium applied to some growths on her face. I'm not sure this was medically appropriate, but it was being done by physicians. And these are some tools that were used for applying these radium pastes. It was also being used for what is essentially brachytherapy, meaning small needles of radium would be inserted into the site of a tumor to cause local destruction. Also kind of makes sense, right? By 1921, radium and radium therapies had entered mainstream medical literature. So in the Journal of Radiology, there are advertisements for radium medical devices, radium medicines, By 1922, the American Medical Association had actually published a book, a physical book that you can hold in your hands, which had three pages of radium and radioactive waters as uh, part of their new and non-official, but still tacitly endorsed, remedies. (laughs) 1923, there are mainstream medical textbooks that have radium in the title, Principles of X-ray and Radium Dosage. And this is a nearly 300-page book, which actually goes into very exquisite scientific detail about how to use radium appropriately, discreetly, safely, to the best of their knowledge at the time, of course, but was being used commonly. These are just some photos of kind of x-ray and radium technology from the time period in that book. And by 1930, Dr. Harvey Cushing, yes, the Dr. Harvey Cushing after Cushing disease, Cushing syndrome, the famous neurosurgeon, actually implanted a a quote-unquote radium bomb containing 50 milligrams of radium inside the brain of a patient who was essentially dying of cancer and sadly did not make it as a last-ditch effort to save their life. Just to show, this wasn't entirely fringe. So, in terms of radium delivery, we touched on some of these different methods, but just to kind of bottom line it. It's important, you know, we know from toxicology and our experiences in toxicology that the route of exposure in a potential toxin makes a big difference. Drinking a glass of water, pretty safe thing to do. Rapid IV push, I don't know. So, it does make a difference. So, radium delivery can come in different formats. One is the radium salt, meaning radium chloride, radium bromide, whatever, is dissolved in a solution and consumed. That's a pretty serious one. Another one is essentially external beam radiation. So this next image is a device that's showing multiple beams of uh, radium, primarily alpha rays, converging on one spot, much like a lens. But no radium actually goes into the patient's body. The next is the bomb, which we now call brachytherapy. It was called radium bombs because these devices resembled the hand grenades that were used during World War I, not because they exploded, I hope. Um, And those would be inserted into a tumor and then later removed. And then the last one is this radium emanation, which as I mentioned is somewhat similar to homeopathy in the sense that it would expose water to radium without actually introducing radium to permanently reside in that water. So the water would take on short term some alpha particles and short term some radon. It wasn't just medicine though that included radium. Again, this was, this was an exciting new technology people understood that this had some kind of special mysterious power and wanted it. So there were a large number of radium products being produced. In fact, in 1921, this is a photo of the NYC radium exhibit, which is kind of what we're doing right now, right? Like we're all at a knack, where we're kind of showing, showing off new ideas, new technologies, new, new, new forms of science. And so they had kind of a radium showcase. What are people doing with radium? What are the new ideas? What works, what doesn't work? And this actually should look pretty familiar to all of us right now. We know from the Radium Girls book and, and from history that radi- radioluminescent watch dials were a, a really cool technology. I mean, these things glowed in the dark. This is, this is a time where most of the country and most of the world was not electrified. So you can now see what time it was even without light. That's, that's impressive. But there were some other things too, like cigarettes, condoms, and razors, which were marketed as <laughs> containing radium. <laughs> But it goes on. There were creams, water, cosmetics, fertilizer, toothpaste, and of course medicines—in quotes, right? Medicines in quotes. So there were also the truly non-official medicines, the quack and sham medicines, which uh, which are quite different than even the kind of rough technology of uh, you know brachytherapy or external beam radiation. To quote Ruth Lamb, who was an uh, FDA educator, she wrote in 1936 about radium. The history of radium is so picturesque, the element itself is so weird and its action so little understood, especially by the man in the street, that it is easy for an unscrupulous quack to capitalize on its mysterious properties. And with that, we'll come to Radithor, the substance that ultimately killed Evan Byers. Radithor certified radioactive water contains radium and mesothorium in triple distilled water. Produced by Mr. William John Eloysius Bailey. All right, so who is this guy, William Bailey? Well, he was born in 1884 in Boston. This is a photo of him. We know that he went to Harvard College starting in 1903. We have uh, some information about him from, from the Harvard College First Report. And there's a little, little bit of information about, about him out there but not a whole lot that's easily accessible. So I actually got in touch with the Harvard University Archives and requested a copy of his uh, transcripts and his his file. <laughs> 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 yeah, and they very courteously sent them. <laughs> which is cool. So thank you, Harvard. Uh, <laughs> this is his report card. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he passed his classes. Didn't do great, but you know, he passed. Okay. Just, um, here's his application, his demographics, some um, background information about him. You know, and, and then in, uh, a couple of years later, this is actually a, a letter that he wrote with his own hand and signed, withdrawing from Harvard, uh, essentially for financial reasons, which understandable. Like, you know, not, not a wealthy person, it's a, it's a huge amount of money, so he had to make the decision to withdraw. Um, so this is his w- withdrawal letter. He didn't end up graduating. That's OK. But interestingly enough, the following year, you're not meant to read this. It's very small font, uh, <laughs> but it's there. He, he wrote a letter to the Dean of Harvard requesting that the Dean of Harvard write a letter on his behalf to President Theodore Roosevelt saying that he would be a very good diplomat to send to China to help industrialize China. So I don't want to speculate about kind of the narcissism and megalomania that it takes to do this. <laughs> um, but uh, Dean Hurlbut uh, did deny the request. <laughs> Regardless, a couple of years later in 1915, uh, William Bailey did end up actually getting arrested for fraud and we do have those records as well. So this is 1915, what was happening is he started a company called the Carnegie Engineering Company, had nothing to do with the Carnegie family, but was kind of utilizing the Carnegie name. William Bailey was one of them. And what happened was that he was accepting deposits for the construction of automobiles. So he collected $50 deposits from multiple, actually several thousand people for $50. And when his company was investigated, I thought this was kind of funny, all they found was a shed with one toolbox. <laughs> so he went to jail for 30 days. So the post office was really not happy about this. All they found was you know, no car materials and they said, you are full of it, you're going to jail. Not to be the third, three years later, he was again tried for fraud and fined. And this time, he had actually started in the patent medicine market. And he was producing, in air in quotes, medicine called LaSICo, which was marketed as kind of a, a, a male enhancement product. And the reason that he was fined is that it contained strychnine and it was toxic. So he got shut down a second time. By the 1920s, William Bailey got into... Radium products, and he, in addition to Radithor, which I'll tell you more about in a little while, he produced a large number of radium products. He produced something called Arium, which contained radium, It was meant to kind of heal you from your your woes. He marketed adrenoray, Linarium, Dentarium, Caparium, which were radium-containing com- you know medicines, which all had various indications for treatment of various maladies. He did make something called the emanator, which was that kind of emanation technology where water would be exposed to radium, but did not actually contain any. And then he also created something called the Endocrinator, And I just, I have to read this description to you because it's so amazing. So this thing was a radium containing pouch and the instructions read mail, place radioendocrator in the pocket of this adapter with the window upward toward the body. Wear adapter like any athletic strap, the cloth label in the front. This puts the instrument under the scrotum as it should be. <laughs> Where at night, radiate as directed. <laughs> and sold these things for $1,000. Awesome. Yeah. And what's kind of amazing though, is that these actually contained radium, which is a mind blowing. So there's a nuclear engineer named Carl Willis, who did an amazing job of tracking down one of these devices placing it in on a fluoroscope and doing a long exposure photograph and found that this thing is still radioactive, basically a hundred years later. Then we get to Radithor, kind of the cause of Eben death. Here's a bunch of different photos of these bottles, what it looked like. Here's a case of Radithor, it comes in packs of 30. And even to this day, if you are ever finding one of these in an antique store or thrift shop, don't buy it <laughs> because they're still radioactive. So the same nuclear engineer, Carl Willis, did another amazing job. He tracked down one of these bottles and even though the water had evaporated entirely from the bottle, found that the cork retained enough radium to, to expose film and develop this auto radiograph from it. Radithor gets its name from radium, which is the most common isotope radium-226 and mesothorium, which was radium-228, hence radithor. (laughs) And what's interesting is it was a combo of these two different forms of radium, and they are a little different from each other in the sense that radium-226 has a half-life of 1600 years, so very long, it's gonna last for a long time, but it's gonna emit less energy, less radioactivity in that first initial period. But it also contained 50%, roughly radium-228, which has a much shorter half-life. So, 100-year-old bottles of radithor won't contain much of it at all. But at the time it was produced, it's going to be very intensely radioactive. There have been some studies in terms of how much radiation a bottle of radithor actually contained. So these are essentially government studies, which I've kind of compared, give, giving you a sense of context. So a one, a single bottle of radithor if drank, so at contact, per day would give you about 8.4 millisieverts. That's, that's per day. A CT scan is about seven. So if someone drank one, one bottle, they would, you know, until this radium left their body, be receiving the equivalent radiation of about a CT scan per day. That's a lot. Evan Byers, just to remind you, drank 1,400. Well, you can't make money if you don't make, you know, if you don't market and advertise. So I wanted to see like, how was this product actually introduced to the market? How did Radithor get marketed to, uh, to the public, to physicians, to, to people who had, you know, money to spend? And so I contacted Arlene at the New York Academy of Medicine, their archivist, who is uh, like an incredible resource. So thank you, Arlene and was able to actually hold in my hand some of this Radathor marketing material. There are these books called Radathor that were distributed to physicians, to prescribers, to people who could then encourage patients to purchase Radathor. And when you touch this, it's actually made out of really high quality paper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't bring a Gagger counter with me, so I hope I didn't get contaminated. <laughs> but, but these are very high quality, kind of luxurious materials. I mean, the logo is well-designed. Right? The, uh, the paper is embossed. If you touch it, you can feel the Radathor text coming out of it. You hold this in a doctor's office, you feel like this is classy. This is cool. This must be good. Yeah. And, and this logo, again, like, <laughs> this is, this is you know, a neoclassical you know, 1920s woman. This was probably largely marketed towards a very specific demographic, holding a chalice, you know, this Greco-Roman chalice with kind of these emanations coming out of it. So this is the logo of Radathor. If anyone's looking for a poor-taste toxicology tattoo, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> One option. And there were, there were actually dozens of these different pamphlets, and they, they utilized language that you would kind of find familiar in any kind of pseudo-medical format. So the use of testimonials, you know, Radathor cured my whatever, I love Radithor, I'm a doctor, I've been prescribing Radathor forever, signed initials. <laughs> you know, here's like just a couple more examples of just how how intensely this was marketed and really like how cool these marketing materials looked. You know, The, the silver print, the embossed text. And this was produced by you know, Bailey, self named, Bailey Radium Laboratories Incorporated, all these different products. You can see it kind of at the bottom of all of these publications, it's written on the bottles. And looking through these pamphlets, we actually see a lot of photos. So here are some photos taken from these pamphlets. These are cyanotypes and photographs. And this is, quote, our laboratory. So it's discussed, this is what it looks like. This is the radium purification process. It's very high tech. This is our equipment. This this is the apparatus used in making radithor. That looks complicated. Radithor must be good. Here are scientists working diligently to take measurements, make sure it's as radioactive as advertised. <laughs> and here's some photos of the, the process, how it begins and how it ends. And conveniently enough, it comes with an order form if you want to you know, send them some money. And you should address it to Bailey Radium Laboratories at 336 Main Street, East Orange, New Jersey, with an easy payment of $25 to $30. So what did this place look like? 336 Main Street, East Orange, New Jersey. What does this, this wacky laboratory look like? Well, we know it's in New Jersey, and we have atlases from New Jersey in 1932. And we have an atlas of East Orange in New Jersey from 1932. So let's take a look at it. Here's Main Street. Enhance. Enhance. Okay. And there's plot 336, okay? And we see that it's right across the street from the East Orange Station, and on the corner right next to City Hall. Well, it's gone. (laughs) So that's, this is for March, 2023. It's an empty lot, it's chain link fenced off. There's some shipping containers on it, but there's City Hall. So I don't know what that building exactly looked like. Maybe we can find out some other way. Let's look at the 1932 East Orange High School syllabus from East Orange. And conveniently, they have an aerial photograph of City Hall and the station, which means presumably this is building 336. There are also postcards from 1932, from this time, that city hall, which would make that building 336. So I think this is what it looked like, but I don't know what the inside looked like. I don't know if this plot was shared with other companies, if it was an apartment, I, I, that's, all, that's all I got. <laughs> well, we know that this stuff is bad, right? Radium, drinking radium is a problem. It's clearly hazardous. We know that since the early 1900s that people can die from it. So. Once Eben Byers got sick, the authority started looking into this and the Food and Drug Administration was contacted. The problem is that their authority comes from the Pure Food and Drug Acts of 1906. And that says a lot of things, but one of the things it said, which really pertains to Redethor, is that a drug has to be truthful about what it contains. Contains radium and mesothorium. They're telling the truth. So the FDA really couldn't do anything, and the FDA had nothing to investigate. There was no law, as far as they could tell, that was broken. And there was nothing the FDA could do to shut this down. However, the Federal Trade Commission did get involved. And the Federal Trade Commission looked at this from a different point of view. So I'm going to read to you a quote by Robert H. Wynn, who is an FTC investigator who took testimony from Eben Byers before he died. Quote. A more gruesome experience in a more gorgeous setting would be hard to imagine. We went to Southampton where Byers had a magnificent home. There we discovered him in a condition which beggars description. Young in years and mentally alert, he could hardly speak. His head was swathed in bandages. He had undergone two successive jaw operations and his whole upper jaw, excepting two front teeth, and most of his lower jaw had been removed. All the remaining bone tissue of his body was slowly disintegrating and holes were actually forming in his skull. That's really horrifying. So maybe looking at this, not from the point of view of a medicine, but from a consumer good, maybe they'd have a case. And what they did was they looked at the guarantee, the Radithor guarantee, which is, you know making a guarantee is a marketing t- tactic. And they found that one of the principles of the guarantee was that Radathor is harmless in every request, which is provably false. <laughs> yeah. It also claimed to cure about 160 different ailments. These are the, listed, these are the ailments that are listed in the FTC complaints that Radathor claimed to cure, but of course was never proven really to address any of them. And lastly, and kind of my personal favorite, it was not produced in a laboratory. So kind of reminiscent to the kind of the fake car fiasco, when they investigated Bailey Laboratories Incorporated, they determined this is not a laboratory. So those photos I showed you earlier, I don't know where where those are from, (laughs) but I don't think it was from from Bailey. And they concluded that Radithor was dangerous. It had killed Evan Byers. And what they did after the trial was in December, 19, December 19th, 1931, is they issued a cease and desist order for production of radioactive water, radithor and put Bailey out of business, which is good. And that's where Bailey exits our story. He didn't get in much more trouble than that. His company was just shut down. But we still had uh, essentially a media blitz on our hands. A very high profile death has occurred. And this happened in a very populous city and people are concerned, appropriately so. So what was the public health response? How did New York City respond to these events? I wanted to take a look at that. So I went to the New York City Municipal Archives, which is found in uh, Brooklyn, in like a really beautiful neighborhood, uh, and, and took a look through the archives and, and went through Health Commissioner Shirley Wynn's correspondence and figured out, you know, what did they do? So Dr. Wynn, who was the Health Commissioner in 1932, of course this came to his attention. This was very high profile. And multiple people started writing him letters. He returned letters. People were talking about this, you know, health, Advocates, physicians around the city. Are my patients at risk? What do I do? This is a letter from Dr. Frederick Flynn addressed to Dr. Wynne. So again, if you read Kate Moore's book, you'll recognize this name. And what Dr. Wynne realized is we got to just get a meeting. We got to kind of get a bunch of experts in a room we have to talk about the situation and so what the New York City Health Commission did was to uh, send out invitations to a large number of health experts radium experts (coughs) physicians around the city government officials including in Washington DC set a date very quickly right the death occurred you know was reported on April 1st there's a meeting coming up on May 11th and sends out RSVPs, people start sending telegrams, letters with, I'll be there, my regrets, I won't be there. And the meeting takes place. And we actually have the attendance sheet from that meeting, which did include Dr. Charles Norris, the New York City Medical Examiner, and also Dr. Alexander Gettler, which if you happen to have read The Poisoner's Handbook, you'll you'll find that name familiar as well, who was the the toxicologist of the New York City uh, Medical Examiner's Office. And so they were in attendance at this meeting as well. And we actually have the meeting minutes again the text is way too small please don't try to read it but i'll summarize it multiple different experts essentially agreed this is bad we should not have people drinking radium this can't go on what's interesting though is at this meeting doctor let me read you from the minutes dr gettler exhibited bones of mr byers and stated he believed that all radium taken internally would do the same thing meaning he had a show and tell. He brought the bones to this meeting, which must have had a pretty dramatic effect on everyone in attendance. It certainly would on me. Three days after this meeting, a bulletin was released, so, a very rapid response, you know, within a month and a half. A bulletin went out warning of the dangers of radium water, and this was distributed throughout the city, obviously targeting healthcare professionals. Just reading a, a brief excerpt from it. It was the opinion of all the experts present that the drinking water containing radioactive mineral salts in solution was extremely dangerous and that a ban should be placed on the sale to the public. Makes sense. Dr. Wynn is warning the public. Like, we have to put a stop to this. Okay, so that's the New York City response, but what, what's happening around the country? Fast forward a year to Chicago, 1933. It's the World's Fair different World's Fair than the Devil in the White City that was in the 1800s. <laughs> and one of the heroes of this story, uh, Ruth Lamb, who is the FDA educator, who has a, a very similar role to, to many um, poison center educators actually, did a really amazing job at this Chicago World's Fair and put together a very incredible kind of diorama display uh, educational presentation, which later was dubbed the American Chamber of Horrors which discussed essentially highly dangerous consumer goods. So one example is a eyelash cream, not a medicine, but a cream that ended up causing profound scarring and complete blindness of just a random human being who definitely shouldn't have had that happen to her. The the fraudulent marketing practices where bottles would contain much less material, much less good than they seem to, that they should. This was just like, it took a huge amount of education and effort. I can't imagine how much effort was taken to kind of educate the public in this fashion. And one of the exhibits was specifically on Radathor. There's an entire presentation just on this one sham, ridiculous treatment, and even brought a bottle to Chicago. What's kind of interesting is that this public health education demo made a tour, and it ended up being played in Washington, D.C. a few months later, where it's documented that Eleanor Roosevelt actually attended which is kind of cool. That same year, a very important book was released by the title, A Hundred Million Guinea Pigs, which described the dangers in everyday foods, drugs, and cosmetics. hundred million referring to the more uh, relatively recent American census, roughly the population of the United States at the time, just talking how few consumer protections were in place in this country just to protect people from, well, poison. And in 1936, Ruth Lamb published her own book titled, appropriately, The American Chamber of Horrors, which went into explicit detail, just the, the horrific things that happened from many of these consumer goods and spent quite a bit actually on Radithor itself. So just reading a short excerpt from the chapter, The Death Dealers. The bottle bore the simple but entirely truthful statement that its contents were certified radioactive water, contains radium and mesothorium in triple distilled water, And that's just what they were. Radithor, therefore, was neither adulterated nor misbranded within the meeting of the Food and Drugs Act. The law, unfortunately, makes no provision for potent drugs which may be dangerous when taken according to directions. This immunity of Radithor to legal action was an ironic tribute to the strictness with which the Food and Drugs Act is enforced. We're in Quebec and Canada. I'm gonna try my best to pronounce this word properly. (laughs) The denouement. (laughs) So the following year comes another tragedy covering the entire country related to uh, unsafe frankly dangerous drugs in the form of the elixir of sulfanilamide tragedy in which this drug was uh, diluted with diethylene glycol a potent kidney toxin that ended up poisoning hundreds of people and killing over a hundred, including many children. And though it's often attributed to be what brought about a major, major wave of legislative change the following year, arguably it was really just the straw that broke the camel's back. Because in 1938, the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act would be signed by FDR and hopefully prevent these types of things from occurring again today. I don't know if it has. I mean, I don't think we drink radium anymore. <laughs> we don't drink radium anymore, but you know, as a, as a community of toxicologists and healthcare workers who take care of poisoned patients, we know that there's still a lot out there and whether they're operating legally or illegally, they're in our society. I'm not gonna offer a solution to that right here. It's way too <laughs> complex a question. <laughs> All right. Does anyone have any questions?